Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you very much for uh, coming this evening. Before we get underway, can I ask you please to turn off your mobile phones and to pay attention to the uh, fire exits. There's one on my right, there's one on the door as we came in, and there's also uh, one on the, on, on the left. And I'd ask you now please to be upstanding for the President of Ireland and the President of the Royal Irish Academy. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. You're all very welcome. And I'd like to extend a particularly warm welcome to our newest member, uh, the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins. You're very welcome to your first discourse in the Academy, and I hope it will only be the first of many. So it's now my great pleasure to introduce this evening's Academy discourse on spatial justice, housing, and the financial crisis. Our speaker is Professor Danny Dawling, Professor of Human Geography at the University of Sheffield. His work concerns a topic of considerable topical interest and importance, dare I say, to every one of us, which is the question of housing, health, employment, education, and poverty. His research shows how far understanding the patterns to people's lives can be enhanced using statistics about the population. Part of this research involves developing new techniques to analyze and popularize quantitative information about human geography, in particular, introducing the use of novel cartographic techniques into geographical research. His latest book on this is The Visualization of Spatial Social Structure, a fascinating topic, and it gives me great pleasure to call on Professor Dawling to address the Academy. Thank you uh, ever so much for inviting me. It's a great honor to be here. Uh, I have about 40, 45 minutes, I'm told, uh, to present my argument. I should explain why I'm, why I'm really here. Uh, the reason I'm really here is that way back in the late 1980s, I managed to get my first job as a temporary researcher up in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And my first job, funded by the Roundtree Foundation, was to look at homelessness. But by the time I got to, to start that job, people were no longer that interested in homelessness. If you, if you can remember the 1980s, you'll remember how homelessness arose again as an issue. But something strange happened, at least in England, uh, in 1989, in particular September 1989. We had a little house, housing market crash. Not, not very big in hindsight, but it seemed like a big thing at the time. And um, I got asked to work out what was going on about this new phenomenon called negative equity, which had never been recorded before. Uh, people whose, whose homes were worth less than the mortgage that they owed on these things. Uh, I was very grateful because it meant that I could take out my first mortgage. Um, so, so this was good for me. But it also taught me as a young researcher how little was actually known about the mortgage market, about lending, about what was fueling the little house price bubble at the time and what would happen when people fell into trouble with their, with their housing. Um, the housing crises then were different in different countries. Different countries peaked at different times. The reason why it was, it was September 89 in England was that the law was changed so that you couldn't claim tax relief as a couple after September 89. And lots of people rushed to take out mortgages just before then, thinking that they would, they would do very well and then found that they were stuck. The Bank of England produced an estimate of the extent of negative equity which was at least 50% incorrect. Uh, things really weren't, really weren't known. And we could map what was happening, and we found out it was actually worse in the poorest parts of the country, not in the richest. That's where people take out the biggest loans. And I became interested in the whole issue of, of housing and how we are housed. But then the housing market recovered. When the housing market recovered, people began to forget about that. It, it seemed like a blip or something not, not to worry about very much. But not everybody forgot. Uh, the reason I've put up this picture of a, of a house here is that somebody who I think hasn't been rated enough, who did carry on working through the 1990s when I didn't on housing, is a professor called, called Robert Frank in the States. And he did a lecture in 2001 
about how everything was going wrong with housing and lending and what people were, were doing in the States and how people were beginning to want, some people were beginning to want to be able to purchase a dream property. Um, if you have a look there, there's a study, there's, there's a garage which can take free cars and so on. And the dream pop property became a reality for part of the middle class in America. And if you didn't go for a dream property, if you didn't try to get the largest house you could in the best school district area that you could, it became harder and harder to be normal. The, you can see the reference there to, to Robert Frank's lecture, which came out later as a book. But the reason for putting this up and starting with this is when people say what happened was a terrible shock. It wasn't a terrible shock to everybody. Robert Frank wasn't a particularly obscure professor of economics in the United States. He wrote two of the main economics textbooks jointly with a man called Ben Bernanke, who later, or now, is the chair of the Federal Reserve. And I, I think it's important to realise that towards the top of elite societies, there was a realisation that something was going wrong, but not a realisation of what to do about that something. I saw Robert Frank first speak in Downing Street. He was invited uh, to do a talk in number 11 Downing Street, I think by Gordon Brown, where he did a very entertaining talk, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to replicate his talk, showing a series of barbecues in the United States and how people were buying bigger and bigger barbecues uh, and where this would lead you to, because it was becoming normal to try to, to sort of show off more. His concern, or the way he put it to that worked best for me, was that if you didn't, in the US, try your hardest to go up and to spend more on your housing, your children would find it harder and harder to get to an average school in the US. And if they didn't go to an average school, they were much more likely to go to a school where they had to go for a metal detector on the way in and where there might be a policeman with a gun at the start of school. So it made sense um, to try and do that. The whole bubble made sense personally, uh, for people it made sense for the bankers and so on. Um, and it wasn't a complete shock to everybody, including the co-author of Ben Bernanke's major textbooks. I, to my great shame, stopped doing any work in housing in the 1990s and came back into it uh, later as the crisis got worse and worse. The main thing I'm going to do for you in the next 40 odd minutes or less is to show you aspects of the crisis around the world. I'm afraid a bit too much about Britain and about England, but I'll start off with some things about the States, because there's a lot of talking the crisis down outside of a few countries in Europe and saying it'll come to the end, it'll be like another crisis, but the evidence yet isn't there to suggest that this isn't a big turning point, there isn't something much larger going on. The graph there is showing the average number of days in the United States as a whole and in a series of states in the USA using the latest data I can get hold of between when somebody stops paying their mortgage and when they're finally evicted from their home in the states. And in the whole of New York State, you're now looking at three years for the average defaulter on their, on their mortgage. Uh, it's called delinquency in the US. The, the normal term is delinquency for not paying your debts. Three years between not paying and finally having the bailiff sent in. What's happening in the US, and has been happening for a long time, 2010, 2011, 2012, is that banks are leaving people in the property because otherwise the value of the property plummets when the property is, is left vacant and the value of entire neighbourhoods plummets in the US. Uh, the last time we saw this in the US was in the 1930s. Uh, there's a very moving letter in one of the papers in the United States from a man old enough to remember the 1930s who moved into a house in the 30s uh, with his family as a boy and found there already a family living there who were the people who'd previously been paying to live in the house and who had defaulted and later found a, a book for the town he was in which showed that the majority of his classmates were living in houses in the 1930s where their parents had defaulted 
on the mortgage payments, but we'd forgotten. It had been such a long time that we'd forgotten this. But this is the picture still in the United States of America. Because it's ongoing, it isn't news, and so it gets reported less and less. But it's something very, very new when you have so many people not just being evicted, but so many people in limbo. And then other people complaining about them living in these houses without paying for them, without thinking about just how, how it feels to know that at any time you could be evicted. This is a strange map of, of Britain, if you like. Is Britain shaped by the value of residential property? And I think this helps explain an awful lot of what, of what goes on in the country where I come from, or why the current budget, the main purpose of the current budget, was to try desperately to hold the housing market up. Uh, the British government are willing to bet billions and billions of pounds on various schemes to try to keep house prices high, largely in the interest of one set of people who live in, in London, in, or near London, in the centre of that circle. Every city there, the area is proportional to how much the residential property is worth. Uh, Reading is larger than Newcastle. Um, it's a very strange situation that a country like England has, has now got to because of this. Uh, I've also got my favourite quote from our current Prime Minister, um, which he said to a Sunday Times journalist while he was campaigning to be Prime Minister, um, saying, please don't make me sound like a prat for not knowing how many houses I've got. Um, he was asked how many homes he had. The correct answer was around about four, um, including a rather large estate near Scunthorpe. Um, but he really didn't want people to know. And this gets to one of the issues of housing that I'm particularly interested in. Um, he wasn't made to sound like a prat. It wasn't much picked up on at the time. The politician who was made to sound like, like a prat about how many houses he had was John McCain, if you remember. Uh, John McCain couldn't answer the question of how many houses he owned. He had to ask his staff how many houses he owned. Uh, a young Barack Obama made great play of this because Barack only owned one house in Chicago. And his staff came back with the answer six. And then a reporter found nine. And then somebody else found ten. And then somebody else found an eleventh house. Um, this has gone down a bit in the kind of political speak, but I. It's a question of balance. It's how much did we get out of balance? How much are we still out of, out of balance? If you're interested in these balances, it's well worth looking, looking back at the past. I came across this graph because it appears in a book by an, uh, a brilliant geographer called David Harvey, uh, who wrote a book 40 years ago called Social Justice in the City, which is being celebrated uh, in a couple of weeks' time, its 40th anniversary. But last year, he wrote a book called Rebel Cities, and this graph was in, in that book. And it's a graph of the number of buildings built over 70 metres high in New York. And what you can see from this graph, if you've got particularly brilliant eyesight <laughs> as well, you can see it, uh, is that the peak of the building boom in New York after the 1929 crash was 1934. It takes five years between a financial crash and when the plans to build finally run out of money. There's a kind of lag effect with building. You can't just build a skyscraper quickly. And then after that crash, you have a long period in which you learn that maybe building very tall buildings wasn't such a great idea after all. And then you begin to, uh, to forget that and you start building again. Then you have another crash in the 1970s and another peak and another crash and so on and so on. Uh, but I find where we are today is, is most similar to five years after the 1929 crash, but now five years after the 2008 crash. This is my attempt at the same graph, but for the world, because of course it was not the same as the 1930s now. Uh, things are much more interlinked financially now. Money can move around the world much faster than it could then. And these are no longer buildings over 70 meters tall. These are all the buildings over 256 meters tall in the world of which more have been built in the last three years than I think in the preceding 30 years. But the plans to build those incredibly tall buildings around the world were made before the 2008 crash. 
and we're beginning to see a slowdown, at least in the plans. Uh, sadly, a helicopter crashed into a crane in London a few months ago, do you remember? And um, when that occurred, people began to look at, well, how many cranes are there in London? And found out there are actually half as many cranes in London now as there were a year ago, which tells you something, I think, of, of, of things that are happening. But I just think we're at a point uh, which is historically very, very strange and on the edge of a particular kind of precipice. Um, it's just a guess. We have no way of knowing. You never know. That could carry on growing up and up. We might become people who live in the sky around the world. Um, or it could be that we see a crash, as we saw in New York all those years ago. These things are all connected. I was asked about a year ago to begin, begin work on a book on housing. Um, because housing is one thing which really brings almost everybody together. Um, housing is an issue not just for people who find it very hard to get any housing whatsoever, uh, people who are homeless, but it's also an issue for people who are renting, worrying about where their money's going. It's an issue for people who want to try to get a mortgage to start off buying a house. It's an issue which terrifies the middle class and the upper middle class. Everybody thinks there's something wrong with housing in a sense. And I think it's not just that housing was at the start of the beginning of this financial crash with the subprime loans. Housing is one of the few ways in which we are all in it together, in a way that we're not always when it comes to jobs, uh, in a way that we're certainly not when it comes to welfare benefits, because so many of us do not rely on welfare benefits, that it's possible to do terrible things to welfare benefits, but we're all affected by, by housing. Uh, this photograph was taken by Gemma Thorpe, I should say, in Sheffield, and it shows a set of houses which were purchased to be demolished um, because they were seen as too, mu too much housing in Sheffield at the time. And I see connections between houses being demolished in Sheffield and skyscrapers being built in London. Uh, if you have a more balanced idea about where the population are going to be and a more balanced idea of planning, you don't necessarily demolish houses like this and then don't use the sewer system that's underneath them, the road system that's been built, or the neighbourhood that exists and the community that exists and the schools that exist. You try to refurbish them. But there's only a certain number of builders who can do the refurbishment. Uh, if you go to London at the moment and you just spend half a day walking through Kensington, you will see more builders than you'll ever see at any other point in your life. Uh, the builders in Kensington are currently digging two or three storeys underneath uh, to put in basements and sub-basements. Currently under English law, there's no limit on how far down you can go. Um, there's nothing to stop you. The gold is owned by the Queen, but other than that, you can, you can keep on going down. Um, builders fans all over the heart of London. And these are builders who obviously want to work at building, but they could be builders doing up houses like this rather than excavating a swimming pool or a cinema for somebody else in the middle of, middle of a city. The crisis ongoing. I did a book in 2010 called Inequality, uh, called Injustice, sorry, trying to explain inequality and, and how it was working. And I had a graph from the Federal Reserve in that, and I thought I'd update it. Uh, the graph I had in that was about mortgage loans in the US. And it's the black line up there at the top. Um, and I updated it with the most recent data. The Fed are very good at getting data out quite recently. And the little black line carries on going down. The importance of this is that since 2008, citizens of the United States have been paying back more than they borrow for housing for the first time ever. And they're now paying back more. There is no sign of, of that particular crisis abating. There's no sign of going back to normal yet in the US. I'm not saying it's necessarily a good thing to have a population getting increasingly in hock to banks, um, but we're in new territory and banks can't function if people want to pay them money back and don't want to borrow money from them. Um, it, they, they don't make their profits that they're used to making. The little dotted line there is credit card borrowing. And that rises as mortgages go down. So people may be paying more in interest, 
um, but they're not they're not borrowing on housing or being lent money on housing and it's it's a continuation of a trend which is talked down there are endless stories about the end of the crisis coming but when you look at the data I don't think you can see it and the repercussions of this are far and wide uh, these are the Park Hill flats in Sheffield the most iconic building in the city that I come from um, they're grade two listed so they can't be knocked down now they're the ones that appear at the start of the full Monty if if you want to watch that program all like many of our students in Sheffield last Wednesday watch 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 brassed off as a great a great uh, introduction to South Yorkshire and to Sheffield um, the graffiti there which you can't say is uh, sprayed on by a young man who managed to spray it on upside down as far as I can see I love you will you marry me uh, it was a young man who, who was desperately wanting his girlfriend to marry him in the back it's now become the icon to try to sell the refurbished flats in the now semi-privatized part of that block uh, but they're not selling particularly well and there are many many blocks of these just over Sheffield station and all over the country and in much of Europe you're seeing the same kind of thing happening um, these flats are only two hours and 15 minutes away two hours 15 minutes from the heart of London um, but they can't they can't be sold house prices in the north of England are going down house prices in London are still shooting up we used to have lots of arguments in the last 20 years about north-south divide in the UK we stopped arguing now because the north-south divide is obvious it's obvious which direction it's going in um, it's a much less subtle thing to look at jumping back to the USA again this is the latest data I can get on foreclosures and repossessions the repossessions to the darker bars which you see coming in now and these are counted in millions millions a year when it first began it was news when the first neighborhoods in Detroit that became entirely empty were empty it was news as it becomes normal it stops being news but it isn't changing it is not like what I began my research looking at in 89 1991 that short-lived difficult bite but if you could hang on in your house for three years you'd be okay back then the newspaper headlines were all about couples who had just split up but they were stuck living in the same house for a few years the stories now that you, you get occasionally in the papers are not about couples stuck in the same house who split up but couples stuck in the same bedroom in London who split up but they haven't got a second bedroom because they're lending that, they're lending that bedroom to a lodger who's helping them pay the inflated mortgage um, but, but it's, it's a widening crisis it's a normality of a crisis and it's a long slow crisis the picture there is, is, a, is what was a squat in Sheffield that's been boarded up that's another picture from the inside that squat from the people who are, who are inside it there's a sense or at least I think I, there's a sense and I would be very very interested to know what you think I have been reading quite a lot um, of the Irish papers recently for obvious reasons um, for also obvious reasons because I'm not from Ireland I'm not going to try and put my foot in it and say too much what I think about and I've also been getting some, some help from some people here um, but the sense of foreboding and not knowing what's going to happen is, is widespread. It's not just in places that are in, in a completely dire situation like in Greece or in Portugal and in Lisbon. It, it's right across Europe, apart from parts of the heart of Germany, where they're very angry that people are coming in from outside Germany and buying property because they think it's safe and the prices are going up in Munich. Um, it's... <laughs> Right. Um, the, the sense of not knowing where we're going but that something has altered it is widespread and I think it's a, it's a more pervasive uh, fear and fear for the future of what you do particularly as, as people have done things like invest in property because they think this will help them when they think they're not going to have a pension in the future and so on it's, it's more of an issue um, the one place I say where I don't see it or where it's almost played through and come out the other side is Japan uh, which in, in a way Japan is interesting to look at out of all the rich countries of the world in that Japan has now lived with two decades of lost growth 
uh, with house prices peaking a long, long time ago in, in Tokyo. Uh, with other things peaking, the number of cars sold in Japan has gone down every year for 20 years. And Japan is coming out of it. The world hasn't ended in Japan. And I think we could learn a lot by looking at, at Japan for what happens and not think about it as two lost decades, which is the way it's, it's talked about, but as two decades that could teach something to people who desperately want to get back to where they were before, but where they were before is unlikely to happen, let alone if it's, if it's a particular, particularly good thing. Markets are like casinos. You, you, you just, if you could predict what would happen with markets, you'd make a lot of money. Maybe a few people can predict um, if you look at the top of the Sunday Times rich list of Ireland, I noticed, and uh, UK, you could probably guess which people may be better or not so good at predicting. The interesting thing about the rich list is how much movement has been at the top of it. Um, so clearly, if somebody was good at predicting a few years ago, they're not necessarily so good now. This graph is showing you the three-month-on-three-month three movements in house prices in UK since 1983. And in hindsight, you can draw this little dotted line that says that we had that peak in September 89. Prices came down to a minimum in 1992. Rose again with acceleration at a peak in 2002. But my last dotted line is the Danny Blanchflower line. Danny Blanchflower is the former economist who was on the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England, um, who says that the housing stock of the UK is still overvalued by 30%. Other people connect from the depth of 2008 and draw a little dotted line upwards. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. That's the lottery of where, of where we're currently going. There is now a large and growing body of evidence that this kind of insecurity is having a very bad effect on people's health. The immediate effect on people's health is some of the saddest ones, which is the rise in suicide that's been charted across many parts of Europe and here, and in the UK. Uh, the rise in, in suicides with the crash in the Asian market happened earlier, um, and actually often happens just before the crash, or before the implications of, of, of the crash come through, but people fearing about the future. But that is the smallest health effect of the financial crisis although tragic for the people involved. A much wider effect has been now measured in the United States of the housing market rate of, of possessions and repossessions and defaulting being a direct predictor of increasing number of people turning up in accidents and emergency units, of generally making the health of the population worse, levels of stress worse, um, anxiety worse in general to the point in 2008, at the height of the crash, where life expectancy in the United States fell for the first time since the war. Um, something very strange, or at least very strange, and certainly I didn't predict it, has happened in England and Wales in the last 18 months. People like me who look at health inequalities expect health inequalities to widen dramatically in this period, and we particularly expected young people to do badly because of a lack of jobs for young people. Uh, the biggest casualties of the crash were not people being laid off from work. It was youngsters never get a, getting appointed to that first job. Uh, that's a generation who, who, have, who have really lost out. But we didn't or haven't yet seen a rise there uh, in accidents and overdoses and so on. But we have seen a massive rise in, in mortality in England and Wales in the last 18 months. An extra 1,000 deaths a week, every week on average, for 18, 18 months. Um, and because we weren't expecting it, it's taken some time to notice this, and particularly because of the group it occurred in. The group it's occurred in are almost all over the age of 85, and they're mostly women. They're not a group that health inequalities people particularly look at because you don't expect people over 85 to live that long. But they're dying earlier. No particularly cold winters, no flu epidemic. And the clue is the fact that this is much larger rise amongst women than amongst men. The big difference between, well, one of the many, but one of the big differences between women and men over the age of 85 
is that women are much more likely to be on their own because men die five years earlier. Um, and it's beginning to look at, or it's at least a possibility, that these women on their own, often in care homes or, or nursing homes, are being affected by the crisis, by maybe not getting services, but also maybe by the sense of foreboding that is occurring. Uh, Southern Cross Care Homes, the largest provider of care homes in Britain, looks as if it is going bust during this period and people are going to be made homeless. And I just think there needs to be much more attention paid to what's happening in the statistics for the very elderly. And it may well be that in the statistics of the very elderly is where we begin to see some of the first signs of some of the worst health effects. What I've just said to you, there's no proof that this is a direct link, um, but it is worth looking at. The other reason for mentioning this now is that when the National Health Service came in to the UK in 1948, there was a dramatic drop in mortality amongst the elderly. But the drop in mortality occurred in 1946 and 47 and 48, before the NHS and pensions came in. But when people knew they were coming in, and it made it easier to not think that you're going to be a burden on your family and that you were going to be looked after and so on. The suicide rate amongst elderly people in Britain more than halved um, before the NHS came in. And in a sense, we may be in an opposite period of you're looking at things disappearing. It's, it's a very pessimistic period if, if you're at that particular age. The picture there is it's not related, but it's a young woman phoning our housing officer to see if there's somewhere for her to sleep. Underlying these things, underlying the kind of mess of housing that, that we're in, are other trends. And, and the big trend has been, at least, and I'm now going to talk, I'm afraid, exclusively, I think, about England for the rest of, rest of the five minutes of this. Um, rising income inequality. If you have the rich and the top 10% getting better off, and the middle dropping slightly and the bottom dropping more, you're going to end up with a very polarised situation in housing you're going to end with fewer, fewer people able in a situation to get out a mortgage. And in one way, we're seeing the repercussions of that rise in income inequality that began in 1978-1979. Takes some time for it to work through. Uh, but you can't have a well-housed population when you're progressively dividing people by how much money they have. Um, this graph was produced by Oxfam, by the way. At the extremes, we are seeing the biggest rises in the cost of property in the heart of London. It's not just the borough of Kensington, Chelsea, where a two-bed flat will now cost you over a million pounds. Um, it's rippled right across the capital and out into the southeast of England. This is a map from The Guardian showing particular or stereotype in particular groups of people coming in from abroad, supposedly buying housing as a kind of safe investment. Um, but much of the buying is by people inside the country, thinking it's safe to spend an enormous amount of money or borrow an enormous amount of money to buy a house because the prices are going up here. The effects of this have become so extreme that although the overall population of London has gone up a lot in the last 10 years, the number of people in Kensington and Chelsea has actually gone down. Uh, more housing is empty in the heart of London. It's rather like a volcano while the prices go up and up. So think about your economics. Actual number of people needing to be housed is going down. The prices are going up. At some point it has, it has to burst. At some point it becomes, it becomes ridiculous and unsustainable. But while things like gold go down in value and other things go down in value, you can see the very rich is thinking that this may be a safe place for money, but it makes it harder and harder to be well housed in a city like London. Uh, I like some of the Oxfam simplest graphs, and this is, this is one of the simplest ones, uh, but it's showing who's going to be most affected by those cuts that have already been announced have happened and those which are to happen in the UK up to 2016. And that kind of distribution I think almost encourages the bubble to continue. It, en it encourages those prices at the top where the majority of people who are well paid live in England to
to continue up until the point when they burst. All bubbles do eventually burst. I've just got three more slides and then I'll, I'll stop. I'm going to make some suggestions. Suggestions, I think, have to be very place-specific nowadays. You, you can't uh, make general suggestions over what you do. Other than to say that we really need to think of housing again as a source of shelter, as the way in which we receive our shelter and feel safe about where we are, and not as a source of investment or a pension or something that can be used for profit, but as a source of shelter. The biggest difference between the 1930s and now is that we have enough housing. In the 1930s, uh, we still had rookeries. We still had people living in absolutely appalling conditions of overcrowding. We have enough housing now, almost everywhere in the rich world, even in London. In London, there are more bedrooms than there are people. We counted bedrooms at the last census. There are more bedrooms than there are people. Even if nobody wanted to sleep in the same bed as anybody else in London, everybody could have a bed. In England, there are two bedrooms for every person uh, in England. So it's, it's not a lack of housing. And this is where I differ from a lot of my colleagues who say we really need to build, build more housing. Um, I think we do need to build more housing if more people keep on coming. And that's been another effect of the crisis in the southeast of England because of the English language. Um, but, but we don't need to build more housing for the people who are here. We need to renovate it and share it out better. And we certainly need less empty housing. Uh, my preference for how this would be done in England is to pay homage to the inventor of the council tax. The council tax came in when the poll tax failed. Uh, the council tax had bands that are A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. They left the rest of the alphabet out. Um, this is great because you can just add council tax bands relatively easily. You only have to go to N at the moment and you get to the most expensive mansion if you double them every time. So you've still got the rest of the letters. Uh, but it wouldn't be impossible in a crisis situation, say a triple dip recession with no signs of things getting better, to adapt the council tax system and in effect include a mansion tax and be taxing people on the, on the value, the worth of their land and their housing. This would have very little effect on 95% of the population, a small effect on the 4% above the 95% and would only hurt the 1%. But within the 1%, it would hurt those at the top most and those at the bottom of the 1% least. The 1% are the most divided group within British society. Um, and I'm very interested in what's happening here over that. Uh, it's claimed in England that it's almost impossible to register property, uh, that we, we can't actually work out who owns what if they haven't solved it in the last 15 years. Uh, the faster that Ireland registers its property, the more the lie to that statement is, is put for England. Um, I think land value taxation is the most important long-term solution to this problem. To discourage people from holding housing they do not need and holding land empty that they do not need. And to reduce taxes on people whose use of housing is very, very little. I'll go through a few other suggestions. Um, in all four countries of the United Kingdom, we have different versions of what I call the right to sell. They were introduced by the Labour government, but hardly taken up at all. About 600 households, I think, to come up in England. And this is the right when you can't pay your mortgage anymore to stay in your house but become a tenant, and in effect to sell your house to a housing association rather than be evicted. And I think if you look at the mass evictions that have taken place in the United States, um, the damage that is done from this is, is, is massive. A right to sell to mirror the right to buy so that Hard-working families with children can stay in their house, I think, could be popular. We need to do something about second homes, holiday homes, empty commercial property and so on to discourage waste. The main policy that has been enacted since, I think it's the 6th of April, so not very long so far, has been a tax on bedrooms of people in social housing in England. The tax is being levied on that part of the housing system which is most efficient. Uh, people are most closely housed into the housing of the right size of them in the social housing sector. 
Um, but it's an unnecessary, it's an unnecessary tax. It will not have the effect it, it needs to have. And as I said before, we have enough rooms. Um, there are enough rooms for households to have a spare room, just not for people to be living in a house with six bedrooms, rattling around on their own, or to own a second or a third home. Um, I'm not saying nobody should have a second or a third home, but they should pay enough tax if they do to really represent how much they really value doing that. Um, I said before, the building of new housing is really only necessary, even in a place as crowded as the southeast of England, if more people come in who need to be housed. We could do an awful lot more of knocking two homes into one, two small terraces into one. Those kind of, those kind of adaptions are much more sensible than, than new build. There's a much more fundamental problem, which is this growing inequality in societies between the rich and the poor. And ultimately, that's only addressed if benefits actually do rise faster than wages at the bottom. Um, otherwise, you're always going to have a group who are going to find things incredibly dis difficult. And wages need to rise faster. Weekly pay, people who are on a, a pay packet a week, need to raise a little bit faster than salaries. Salaries need to go up more than house prices. Salaries can drop as long as house prices drop, just not as much as house prices. And rents need to stay still if not fall. And I know this is different in different places. The average rents in England are twice what you'd pay a mortgage for. So people are very angry about the rents. Where rents are high, you need to control rents again. Um, rather than saying that people's housing benefit will be stopped and they'll be evicted unless the landlord can find somebody who can pay the rent, we do need to think about bringing rent controls in again. Cities like Vienna have rent controls. Rent controls were a normal thing in much of Europe. Um, and in a time of crisis, when you really want to make sure that the population, they can't have holidays. They can only have one car. You might not all be able to get a job if you want to get a job. But you should at least be able to eat a decent amount of food and expect to be housed. There are certain minimums that need to be guaranteed in some of the richest countries in the world. A very English thing next, squatting's been criminalised again recently uh, in England. And squatting, I think, should go back to its status if your people are not squatting for gain, but are squatting because it's the only way they can get themselves housed anywhere where there's a chance of getting a job. It shouldn't be a criminal offence. And similarly, the criminal offences of landlords who are now renting out garden sheds across the whole of, of London uh, illegally to people in substandard situations. You're only going to stop people behaving in that way if you make it a criminal offence to do something like that rather than a civil offence. It's a, obviously a big wish and a long-term thing, but when you're in a crisis like this, you need to think about how you change things fundamentally because the way we were before was not working. And lastly, last of my ten, and this gets back to the not necessarily building very much, Housing is all about the long term. Housing lives for longer than people. Uh, most housing lives for at least 150 years. If you do it up and look after the housing stock, you can make it live for 200, 250 years in an area without earthquakes. Uh, your housing policy is a long-term policy, not a short-term fix. Um, and my final slide shows you part of that long-term policy. Uh, that housing was never built to house the, the, the woman who's pushing the pram across there now. But it was built and provided in such a way that it is, it is housing a completely different set of people in that street in Sheffield to the ones that the, um, that the steel factory uh, bosses wanted to be housed there. Housing is fundamental at the bottom of this crisis. Housing is the basic thing that, one of the basic things that everybody needs. And policies that work out a way to guarantee we can't make you all rich. We can't give you a kind of dream that you're going to be living like millionaires. But we can say that you will all be decently housed, given that we've already got the stock built everywhere. I don't understand why it isn't possible to move towards these kind of policies unless you're trying to protect 
the equity interests of a very small proportion of people who happen to own quite a lot of very expensive housing. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that fascinating insight. Uh, I'd now like to call on Mary Kelly to respond on behalf of the Academy. Thank you, President. Um, President Higgins, President of the Academy, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to respond to such a thought-provoking um, presentation and discourse that we've had from Professor Dorling. I think um, we could probably say we recognize virtually everything, if not everything, that you've mentioned there. Um, from the rise in, uh, from our Celtic Tiger days, when we couldn't build big enough houses, um, to the current situation when we have um, empty estates, uh, ghost estates, uh, which you may have seen about around Ireland. Um, some of the things that you've said um, in terms of uh, their, you know, the housing stock, uh, there being enough, enough bedrooms, um, possibly there are enough bedrooms in Ireland also. Um, the problem in Ireland at the moment is that many of those bedrooms are in the wrong places. And I know from looking at your website, um, which I... Um, as my children advised me, ask Google when I was asked to do this. <laughs> I uh, had a look at the website, which is really fascinating, um, that uh, Professor Dorling um, is, is a very good uh, geographer and uh, uses that the whole mapping technique um, to, to um, put a real context on it. Uh, and so you can see uh, the United Kingdom in particular, um, but but also the rest of the world in a different way where where the maps are where the people are as opposed to the physical structure. It's very interesting to look at it like that. I'd like to see that done for Ireland as well. But if you start to look at the Irish situation, um, you see that there are, uh, there are many housing estates around the country, but they're not in the places where people have jobs. Uh, and people, uh, you know, while while uh, while there is a, a school of thought that thinks that homeless people or people who need housing ought to be housed in those places, uh, in those housing estates, it's a good theory. But when it comes to it, it's not very practical if there isn't uh, if there isn't employment around there. Now the answer is not, I don't think, tear down the houses. It's try to provide uh, employment in local areas. Um, so uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not sure that the London um, analogy is absolutely the same with Ireland, but I think many of the broader pieces that you, that you set across your, your discourse, uh, I think, um, have a resonance with most people here. Um, the, there are, is some of this type of work uh, done, as I'm sure you're aware, in uh, the university in Maynooth um, by, by NIRSA. And uh, it is that kind of analysis, uh, statistics are very flat if somebody doesn't analyze them. And I think the kind of analysis that Professor Dorling has brought us in terms of, uh, of actually analyzing census data and putting, uh, putting um, almost stories around it um, is extremely useful. And I, I recognize it in terms of some of the work that's done out of the, the project in Maynooth. And from a planning perspective, I work in the planning area at the moment. From a planning perspective, I think one of the things that I'm seeing from this is how important planning is and planning for people to live in houses. Uh, uh, planning around people's lives. A house, as you say, is the most essential thing. And I think um, particularly in the Irish context where I suppose eviction has a, a very historic uh, connotation for all of us, and it's not something that anybody ever wants to see happen in Ireland again, uh, that it is such an emotive issue, a house is uh, somebody's home and not an asset. Uh, I think we lost track of that totally during the Celtic Tiger days. Um, I think we could also probably um, uh, look at what you said about, uh, about um, 
uh, some various people and their quotes about numerous houses and the numbers of houses they have. And I think most of us who were watching the Late Late Show on the famous night when a particular <laughs> minister um, said in a very offhand way uh, how difficult it was to keep up two houses. Um, he sort of got his comeuppance later from the Irish people for, I suppose, arrogance in that particular way of saying it. Um, so I think there's an, an awful lot of things of what you've said there uh, resonate uh, uh, with, with me and I think with others in the room. It's given us a huge food for thought in terms of how to, how to maybe begin to assess uh, the housing stock that is there um, and what we can do with it. Um, but also how we can bring uh, employment and enterprise to the areas where the houses are. Uh, but it is most important that people are housed and that they're not threatened. The other uh, resonant, resonance that we have, I think, in a very sad way, is with suicide mm -hmm. uh, and with that deep sense of foreboding that people have um, at a political level as well. Um, President Higgins made a very important speech uh, the other week um, setting that out at a more of a European international scale, uh, the foreboding that people have and the, the uh, disconnect uh, with what's going on. Uh, people can't understand uh, how things have got to such a bad point. They can't see a way forward out of it. And it's really very difficult to ask them to engage with all of the various things that are going on. However, um, we have to go on with it. Uh, and it is... Uh, part of the planning process is really vested in our local authorities, our planning authorities, in terms of trying to uh, design for the future um, and to, uh, to ensure that uh, development is plan-led, that it's not speculative. I think we've seen enough of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that we actually uh, build plan, first of all, and build what we plan, and plan to have people working in the places where they are living. Uh, I think that's probably about the most important thing in terms of spatial planning, that, that people can live in comfort uh, and without the foreboding. Uh, I think it's terribly sad that we've come to this uh, position. And also, uh, I think we can all relate, uh, although it is quite shocking to see uh, what you said about the elderly um, being, you know, we, we, when you said a health impact, I was thinking of all different things. I didn't think for a second that it was in the elderly population. And that is really very sad uh, when we see it like that. So um, I, I won't say very much more because I'm sure people would like to ask you questions. But I'd like to thank you for a very um, interesting uh, elaboration of, of the housing and uh, uh, and we look forward to seeing your book when it comes out. But I would encourage people to look at the website. Uh, while it isn't really uh, that much about housing on it, there's a lot about inequality and a lot of things I think that we could take to heart and maybe apply to our own systems here uh, in, in terms of a fairer society and a better society to live in. Thank you very much. Thank you.